people of God in Christ, the book of Revelation is uh, obviously one of the more difficult books of God's Word, but uh, I ask you to consider this afternoon that uh, to some degree, uh, this is only our perception as those who live in a microwave culture, uh, as those for whom everything else is often made so easy for us. Uh, Those of you who can play the piano, uh, consider that most of us uh, look at that keyboard or those notes on the page and and, uh, we think to ourselves, but that's too difficult. Uh, Those of you who can change your own brake pads, Consider that most of us look at all those springs and levers and and parts in general, and we think to ourselves, but that's too complicated. And consider that nowhere in Scripture are we all commanded to know how to play the piano or fix our own brakes, but that clearly in Scripture we are commanded to study and to understand and know God's Word. In fact, Revelation 1, verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And at the end of the book, in Revelation 22, verse 7, Christ himself says, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. But we not only live in a microwave culture, uh, the church has by and large come to practice a microwave spirituality. An hour or two in church per week, 15 minutes per day, maybe, uh, if we can uh, find the time. And one is thought to have attained to a sufficient level of spiritual maturity. If only we could get there, we think. Um, but the book of Revelation will certainly require us to, <clears throat> to set aside our chosen form of entertainment and to give ourselves to the Word of God. Uh, just as those of you who can play the piano or fix your own breaks uh, have given yourself to that skill. Uh, the book of Revelation will require that we read and reread and reread again. Uh, becoming more and more familiar with uh, each chapter, recognizing with greater and greater ease the the very clear lessons that do stand out in this yet rather difficult book. But for the sake of our purpose here this afternoon, let's confine our attention to the passage at hand. And let's let's read and reread, as it were, Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. Revelation 1 serves to introduce not only the book as a whole, but also the first of the seven visions that God gave to the Apostle John. And this uh, first vision is composed of seven letters dictated by Christ himself to the church. And uh, the first of these seven letters is written to the church in Ephesus. Uh, Revelation 2 verse 1 says, To the angel... Of the church in Ephesus. The first thing we need to consider is is the rule of Christ over the church. The image of Christ seen by John uh, in this first vision, and indeed the image of Christ throughout the book of Revelation, is one of glory and power and highest exaltation and authority. 
Revelation 2 verse 1 says, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Like each of the seven letters, this first letter begins with a reference back to the vision of Christ given to John in chapter 1. In Revelation 1 verse 13 and following, John writes, I saw one uh, like a son of man clothed with uh, a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp double-edged or two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. We, we heard these words as our call to worship this afternoon, but, but we would be well served to hear them often, I believe, because this image of Christ will serve to expose and convict us of a terribly low and pitiful view of Christ these days. Here is a, here is a window, a window opened into heaven to us. And uh, here is a view of Christ in his exalted state, which, he, um, uh, which vision must drive us certainly to our knees. Uh, we must remember that uh, to know God is to fear him. If you truly know God, you will, by virtue of knowing him, you will fear him. And since Christ is that very revelation of God to us, the same is true here. To know him is to fear him. If you truly know Christ, you will fear him. Fearing him will be the clear indication that you indeed know him. But if we find ourselves willing to play games with his name, or otherwise to belittle his glory in some other way, we prove that we need to grow, do we not, in our knowledge of Christ. Or think about it this way. We all confess that the day will come when every knee will bow to Christ's rule. But the word to emphasize in that expression is every. According to Philippians 2, the day will come when every knee will bow. And the reason that every knee will bow is because everyone will see him coming in his glory. The same glory that we're seeing in Revelation 1. Everyone will see him coming in his glory in the clouds of heaven. And in that day to see him will be to know him. And to see him and know him will drive even his enemies to their knees. But is there not enough in that glory already? revealed in God's word that our knee must bow to him now. One day every knee will bow as his glory is revealed to everyone, but we must be driven to our knees today by the glorious and exalted view of Christ given to us in the book of Revelation. But we might ask, does this offend? Does this offend us? Does it it seem to take Christ away from us? as we see him with blazing eyes, with feet glowing, with a double-edged sword, strangely, it would seem, coming from his mouth, and with his face shining like the sun in in full strength. This is certainly, or this is truly, a a different appearance of Christ than we see in, for example, like in John 13, 
when, uh, when John is reclining at the table, leaning back against the body of his Lord. Uh, it's, it's not a different Christ, but a different appearance of Christ. It's the appearance of Christ now in his eternal glory and exaltation in heaven. But as much as we are drawn to that image of Christ at table in close fellowship with his disciples, we need to remember that Jesus even said to his disciples in John 16, verse 5, Now I am going to him who sent me. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. We need to remember what Jesus said to Mary at his resurrection. He said, do not cling to me. He said, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. I think he was saying, you can't have me much longer in this form. Do not cling to me in this form, in this appearance For indeed, I am going to my Father in heaven. We need to understand what Jesus so clearly taught his disciples, that unless he goes away, he cannot serve as our Savior. Unless he returns to the Father, unless he is exalted to the Father's right hand, unless he reigns and rules eternally with such an appearance that we ourselves are made to tremble before him, unless he is the Christ of Revelation 1, He has not the authority to save us, nor does he have the power to keep us, to keep us from the power of evil with us and within the world. However, let us understand as well that even as Christ reigns in glory, so that to know him is to fear him, yet he is also the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That is to say, he is the one who dwells with the church. At his ascension, Jesus promised, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the ascension of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit were not a matter of Christ leaving and the Spirit coming. It was a matter of Christ fulfilling his promise to dwell with us to the end of the age. And so the Spirit has come, um, which means that Christ is walking among the seven golden lampstands. Christ is with us so that where two or three are gathered, there he is in the midst of them. Christ is with us so that even in sending the Spirit, he has not left us as orphans, as he said, but he himself has come to us. He reigns in in unimaginable glory, as we've seen. And his rule cannot fail. That needs to be our assurance. But he is the king who dwells with his people and who walks among the subjects of his unshakable kingdom. So Christ holds before the church that vision of himself given to John. The letter to the church at Ephesus begins the words of him. He's saying, you just saw this, and these are now the words of him who holds the seven stars in his hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Uh, And the second matter to consider is the commendation of Christ. A second point. I know your works, says Christ. Here is great reassurance, even for us. I know your toil and your patient endurance. In other words, I, I know your accomplishments and the diligent effort by which these accomplishments have come. 
Uh, here, again, we see that Christ is, is close to his church. Uh, he dwells with his church so that he has intimate knowledge of his church. And he goes on to say, I know, I, I know you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles but are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I know, I know, says Christ to the church. And this really is a glowing uh, commendation. Uh, maybe you face evaluations uh, in, your, in your job performance at work. Uh, so that you you sense here the the feeling of affirmation the the church at Ephesus must have felt, and the thing to take from this is is the assurance that that Christ is watching and that the ministry that we do in in Terre Haute, Indiana, the ministry that we do in faithfulness to Christ is not forgotten and does not escape His eye. The King who does His work through us is watching. And even as uh, Hebrews 6, verse 10 says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. And notice how well-rounded the church at Ephesus was in their faithfulness. Uh, First, they were faithful indeed in the specific things they had done. Second, they were faithful in doctrine. They had tested the false teachers among them uh, and had not been afraid to label them as false that the church might not listen to them. And third, they had persevered in both deed and doctrine. They were not just faithful for a season, but they had remained faithful even in the face of suffering. And their suffering was likely even a direct result of their faithfulness, and yet they remained faithful. Too often the church is only faithful for a season because it doesn't take long to realize the cost of faithfulness. Paul wrote to Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Young people need to understand this from an early uh, age. The, The church needs to understand this at every age, at every point. If you want to be a faithful follower of Christ, you will be persecuted. You will be made fun of. It would be the slightest offense, right? Just to be made fun of, you will likely be accused of being out of touch and behind the times. Uh, Probably the most common accusation is that you're not supporting the community. Uh, And too often we think, well, I I guess certain allowances need to be made uh, because we have to live here. But you see, that's just not true. We don't have to live here. We may be called to die here. The other thing that gets said, it's, it's worth mentioning, I think, is that, is that the church is going to die. Uh, if we don't start giving in on certain points, the, the church is going to die. Our membership will dwindle, nobody will want to join us, and the church will die. And so, as one writer put it, uh, we start entertaining the sheep rather than worshiping the lamb. But if we, if we have any knowledge of church history, even, even that recorded in Scripture itself, we will see that the church has been dying for 2,000 years now. Uh, and yet she lives on through the power of the Holy Spirit. The very life of Christ breathed into her. That's what the Holy Spirit, that's who the Holy Spirit is. God always reserves the 7,000 to worship Him rather than Baal. 
More times than not in the annals of, of church history, when the church is glorious and well-respected on earth, it's because she is apostate. And when the church is mocked and derided, when she's perhaps even public enemy number one, or just ignored, it's because the church is faithful in following Christ. Truly, what a glowing commendation from Christ this is. And may it be said of us, you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And yet, as glowing as uh, this condom, this commendation is, uh, it then leads to the charge of Christ. This is a third point, the charge of Christ. In verse 4, but I do have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, it seems rather nonspecific, the love you had at first. Most other versions uh, translate it, your first love. But most scholars have agreed, I think, that, that Christ means their love for him. He was their first love, and he is calling the church to love him again and to love him as they did in the beginning, and doesn't that fit our own experience that we too easily grow cold in our love for Christ? So we learn something extremely important in our day. We learn that the church can be faithful in all other respects. The church can be doing this and that and the next thing. The church can be identifying the false teachers in their midst, attending to her covenant children, feeding the poor. The church can be getting together every day, praying for each other and bringing others into her fellowship as well. But if Christ be not her first love, she labors in vain. If Christ is not her her heart's desire, the church is even in danger of being cast off. If you do not repent, says Christ, chilling chilling words, I, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And the way this applies to us is is that we can be diligent in regard to worship services, uh, Sunday school, uh, our, our, our two services per, uh, uh, per Lord's Day, uh, men's fellowship, women's fellowship, Thursday evening Bible study. Um, whatever the ministry, we can be diligent in everything and at every time, but the moment our love for Christ fails... Things begin to fall to the ground. It it may look grand and glorious. We may be the envy of other churches. But it's all for naught if Christ be not our heart's desire. At every point of success as a church, the question remains, where is Christ in it? Is his name truly honored? Is he revered? Is he even feared among us? and among our children. It would seem that more and more today our culture doesn't even know what it is to fear God, to fear Christ. It's it's, it's a foreign concept. It it doesn't figure into anything we understand. If we go to God's Word, which is how the church has always been faithful, if we go to God's Word, we see that to, to love Christ is to love Him for who He is as he himself has revealed himself to us. You don't, uh, you don't go to your spouse and say, uh, I, I will always love you so long as you be what I want you to be. To 
to love your spouse, you must go to him or her and say, tell me who you are. I want to love you. And 30 years down the road, love hasn't changed. Tell me who you are. I want to know you more. So why should it be any different as the bride of Christ seeks to love her husband? Oh, Christ, reveal yourself to us and move us to love you as you are. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, writes John, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. To love Christ is to want to know him. And as we come to know him in God's word, we will fear him. We will worship him with joy and in love with him, for he is our Savior. But we will also worship him with gravity, with a sense of weightiness. What are, what are we really doing here? Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, or as it is today, afternoon. Do we, are we here with gravity? Are we here with uh, a weightiness about uh, what we're doing as we worship this glorious Savior who is so blessedly our Savior? He is holy and He is majestic. He is awful in His reign as King. He will put all silliness out of our worship of Him. And so we need to protect his name even more. We need to protect um, his character. Just, again, the same as we would do with our husband or or our wife. And we need to seek the glory that is infinitely greater in Christ than, of course, we find in any person on earth. The concluding question is, do we love Christ? I should think we do. How can we not love the one who has so has so loved us? Charles Spurgeon put it this way in a, a sermon on this very text. He said, "Will you uh, will you wound your well beloved? Church of God, will you grieve him whose heart was pierced for your redemption, brother, sister?" Can you and I let Jesus find out that our love is departing, that we are ceasing to be zealous for his name? Can we wound him so? Might he not hold up his hands this morning with flesh, blood, fresh blood upon them and say, These are the wounds which I received in my house. It would seem nothing that I died for them. But ill it is that, having died for them, they have failed to give me their hearts. So what is your relationship to Jesus Christ? That's the first question we ask of those who come to make a profession of faith. What is your relationship to Jesus Christ? And it's the first question because it's the first matter of of true faith. But it's also the question that we must continue to ask in the church. Who is Christ to you? 
Are your thoughts of him small? Or do they match the glory that we see of Christ in Revelation 20, in Revelation chapter 1? Do you seek to love him by giving him the glory that is due his name? Let those who know him as their Savior seek to love him with the honor that is due to him. Amen. Let's pray. We confess ourselves, uh, O Christ, that uh, we so often, so easily lose our first love, which is to say we do not love you first and foremost and above all. And uh, we have small thoughts of you and little give little time to reflecting upon indeed how close you are and yet how high and exalted you are and how wonderful and that is as a blessing to us that you now reign in unapproachable glory. But we thank you that uh, even as we saw you um, uh, reach out and place your hand upon John in his fallen uh, state, um, that you would reach out with your right hand and and raise us and grant that we would stand in your presence and that we would be assured that as great and mighty and glorious as you are, Lord Jesus, yet you are for us and you are with us individually, personally, in families, and also with us as a, as a church, as a congregation, as your very bride. You are with us, and uh, you will never leave us nor forsake us. May we love you, therefore, as we ought, with all that we know of who you are and what you have done for us to save us from our sins. In your name we pray. Amen.